trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. Ah, we made it. It's 2021. <laughs> uh, you know, why Why do I still have the, that, uh, that strange feeling of the hair standing up on the back of my neck? I don't think we're out of the woods yet. I'll explain more in a few moments, but uh, first let me start by welcoming you to The Brian Hyde Show. Sponsored by great sponsors like Alta Bank and also Landmark Risk Management and Insurance. I do appreciate them uh, helping to bring you this program. Their direct support makes it possible for me to bring you thought-provoking and uh, and hopefully thoughtful commentary on a day-by-day basis. And we live in such a time that uh, I, I think this is more essential than ever. I am one of many, many voices out there simply trying to speak the truth as I best understand it. And, uh, and it's not easy. There's a lot of crazy stuff happening. The official narrative, uh, let's just say that uh, I have some serious trust issues. We'll talk about some of the reasons why over the course of this hour. But if you have the opportunity to do business with Alta Bank or with Landmark Risk Management and Insurance, please do so. Please tell them thank you for sponsoring the show. Let them know that uh, their message is reaching your ears via my voice. All right, where to begin Oh, by the way, you'll find the link to those sponsors in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Now, where to begin? Here we are. We are in the new year now. It's, uh, it's Today is January 4th. I know a lot of us are looking towards this coming Wednesday, two days from now, when Congress meets to certify the vote of the Electoral College. And there are still a lot of uh, challenges that have arisen to this election. And this is the, the thing that uh, I, I'm just going to start out with this warning. If there was a time to be very discerning in what we are and are not being told by mass media, this is the time. Because the approved narrative right now is, well, now Trump lost this election fair and square. Any concerns to the contrary are either, you know, conspiracy theory or sour grapes. I'm not so sure. And, and I want to make this clear from the very outset, because right now the easiest thing in the world would be to say, well, you're just a Trumper. And then you can dismiss anything that I have to say, right? Because all I'm doing is stumping for Trump, except I'm not. My concern is far less whether Donald Trump enjoys another term in office. My concern is whether the constitutional republic that I claim as my home is still a constitutional republic. Or if the people from whom that republic derives its just powers, have been disenfranchised through systematic fraud and misrepresentation and deception within the voting system. I know, it's a pretty tall order, but uh, these kind of things matter. And for those who are, are so you know caught up in the whole partisan back and forth, I don't know what to tell you. I think, I think too many people let politicians live rent-free in their heads, and, and I strongly advise against it, but what's at stake here is the integrity of our system of government. And by the way, I'm not saying, therefore, I know for sure that all of these claims of voting fraud, 
are, are true. But what I will say with absolute confidence is this. They have not been thoroughly looked at in the light of day. They have not been thoroughly investigated. I know the popular narrative is, well, you know, the courts have dismissed this 58 times, as if, you know, the courts couldn't be wrong 58 times, especially if the courts have some kind of vested interest in preventing a closer look at the system. In other words, if they're protecting their own livelihoods or protecting their own grasp of power. But we've got to take a look. And in fact, it goes, it goes beyond just, you know, well, you know, I want answers. Thump, thump, thump on the table. No. Constitutionally, Congress, the Supreme Court, and the President are required to look at these things and, and figure it out. They're, they're supposed to investigate and, if necessary, stop any kind of dishonesty, fraud, etc. We're going to talk about why that is. I have an article I'm going to post in today's show notes. This is, uh, this is one of the more detailed articles, and, and so I'm not going to tell you. You can sit down and read it in five minutes, and you'll have it all. This quotes sections, subsections, clauses of the U.S. Constitution, and it, uh, it goes into great detail. This is from the Publius Hulda's blog, Understanding the Constitution. It is worth wrapping your mind around what the Constitution actually says so that you can better appreciate what is being done, or more appropriately, what is not being done on behalf of the people of the United States. And again, I just I, I, I don't want people to get caught up in the idea that uh, Trump's got to win or this thing's illegitimate. The, the election needs to be examined because if there is systematic fraud taking place, then the people are no longer able to, to vote. They, they, they cannot you know, elect their, their form of government. It can just be manipulated away from them. Maybe it starts with, oh, look, it was just, you know, a very minor, razor-thin victory here and there. But eventually you get to, you know, the North Korea st- style of elections where, sure, everybody voted 100% turnout. Oh, look at this. 100% voted for, you know, the, the dictator. Publius Hulda says that uh, recently he did an interview with uh, Alex Newman of New American Magazine. Now, Alex is a fantastic journalist. Not one prone to flights of fancy. But he starts with the Supreme Court's dereliction of duty, starting with the Pennsylvania lawsuit, saying, as pointed out in the interview with Alex Newman, <clears throat> and, and he also has a link to another interview, Article 1, subsection 4, clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution, I think it's actually section 4, of the U.S. Constitution, delegates to state and federal legislatures alone the power to make the laws addressing the times, places, and manner of conducting federal elections. In addition, Article 2, section 1, clause 2, provides the state legislatures are to decide how the presidential electors for their state are to be appointed. But in Pennsylvania and other states, judges and state executive branch officials change the laws made by the state legislature in order to permit fraud of such massive scale as would enable the theft of the election for the Biden-Harris ticket. Accordingly, during late September, the Republican Party of Pennsylvania filed a lawsuit challenging the unconstitutional changes to those state election laws. They lost in the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. They asked the Supreme Court to review it, but the Supreme Court dragged its feet. So on October 28th, Justice Alito, who's the go-to justice for the U.S. Circuit in Pennsylvania, or in which Pennsylvania is located, 
issued a statement wherein he identified violations of Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, and Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, as an issue of national importance which calls out for review, those are his words, by the Supreme Court, and that the court should decide the issue before the election. He warned the Supreme Court's inaction on the important constitutional issue raised in the lawsuit has created conditions that could lead to serious post-election problems. Yeah, I'd say he was right on that. (laughs) Justices Thomas and Gorsuch joined Alito in his statement, but nobody else. The Supreme Court still hasn't announced whether they will review the decision of the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. They set this case for conference among themselves on January 8th. That's two days after Congress meets to count the votes. Now, there's also the Texas lawsuit. And Publius Holder says the handling of the, the Texas lawsuit by the Supreme Court was equally egregious. That case alleged that using COVID as an excuse, state officials in Pennsylvania, Georgia, Michigan, and Wisconsin usurped their state legislature's authorities and unconstitutionally revised their state's election statutes. Now, these changes made massive election fraud possible. The complaint sets forth compelling facts alleging the massive and coordinated fraud to steal the November 3rd election. But the Supreme Court refused to hear the case, claiming Texas lacked standing to bring the action, but they were dead wrong, and here's why. Article 4, Section 4, U.S. Constitution says the United States shall guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. Now, the essence of a republic is that the power is exercised by representatives elected by the people. Accordingly, violations of Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, and Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, which made the massive election fraud possible, strike at the heart of our constitutional republic. Because when an election is stolen by corrupt politicians and political parties with the connivance of judges and state election officials, the right of the people to choose their representatives is taken away from them. That's why the state of Texas did have standing to bring the lawsuit. That section is for the benefit of states who comprise this union. The states created the federal government when they ratified the Constitution. The Supreme Court is merely the creature of that Constitution and may not lawfully act in contravention of the document under which they hold their existence. So the U.S. Supreme Court is required to act so as to preserve the Republican form of government for Texas and the other states. But they shirked their duty. We're going to come back to this article in a few moments. Stay with us. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Okay, I dove in deep. It's a new year. I'm feeling refreshed. But I I just had to, to dive in and look at why the U.S. Constitution requires Congress, the Supreme Court, and the President to stop election fraud if evidence can be found. Now, and again, I just want to reiterate, I don't know for sure that election fraud took place, but I have seen enough smoke that I'm pretty confident there was some fire that, that deserves a thorough investigation. And I don't think they've given anything like a thorough investigation. There's been a a very quick effort to, well, you know, we we have consensus on this. I mean, for crying out loud, the media with their incessant president-elect, the office of the president-elect. If that isn't brainwashing, I don't know what is. 
I, I've never seen such an effort before, and, and I've been a part of the media for well over 35 years now. I've never seen it so blatant where there is a narrative and they just pound it into our heads. There have been questions before. I remember the uh, 20, uh, I'm sorry, the year 2000 election. That was, uh, that was interesting, but nothing quite like this. Now, going back to this article by Publius Holda about why the Constitution requires Congress, the Supreme Court, and the President to intervene. He talks about Attorney General William Barr's dereliction of duty. Article 4, Section 4 also imposes on the U.S. Attorney General as part of the executive branch of the federal government the duty to guarantee to every state in this union a Republican form of government. Accordingly, the Attorney General has the duty to prosecute persons engaged in federal election fraud, and he has the duty to file civil actions addressing the election fraud, as suggested by constitutional litigators William J. Olson and Patrick M. McSweeney in their Christmas Eve article. But not only did Barr not lift a finger to fight the fraud, he denied there was any fraud. He, too, shirked his constitutional duty. Shame on him. Will Congress also shirk their constitutional duty? This is... This is what we're going to see play out on Wednesday. And again, I'm going to come back to that narrative, which is there are a number of representatives within Congress who are saying, we will challenge the results. And, and the, the narrative would have us believe because they are enthralled to the orange man. Somehow they, they are just Trumpers and they are determined to uphold this dictator and to do his bidding. But I'm going to ask you to consider, what if, what if, they are simply saying, let's take a closer look and really suss this out and see. Look, if this election really was on the up and up, what would Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have to lose? You would think they would be among the ones most adamant that we've got to go ahead and have this brought out into the light of day to see it as it really is. Because if the facts, if the truth is on their side, it's not going to hurt them, right? But that's not what we're seeing. What we're seeing more is an effort of, no, 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 we just don't look over there. Just, we'll just keep walking, and we got to speed past this and get to get a new administration installed and move on and heal. <laughs> By the way, I'm thinking they're spelling heal, H-E-E-L, as opposed to H-E-A-L. And that's what I believe is, is in store for us if we allow this to stand unchallenged. So will Congress shirk its constitutional duty because they also have a duty under the Constitution, under Article 4, Section 4, to guarantee to the states a Republican form of government. Section 3 of the 20th Amendment imposes on Congress the additional duty of determining whether the president-elect and vice president-elect have qualified for the office. Congress has the ability to perform its sacred duty under Article 4, Section 4, by disqualifying Biden and Harris on the basis that their election was procured by changes to state election laws made in violation of Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1, Article 2, Section 1, Clause 2, which made possible the brazen fraud which resulted in the theft of the election for Biden and Harris. Kamala Harris, this article says, should also be disqualified on the additional ground that she's not a natural-born citizen, as required by Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5, and the 12th Amendment. But, shockingly, it appears that some Republicans in Congress intend to go along with the fraud. Mitt Romney, I'm looking your direction. And, well, he's in the Senate, okay. And will use as an excuse the silly claim that presidential elections are up to the states and Congress shouldn't bully the states. But that would constitute 
and aiding and abetting of election fraud and a shirking of constitutional duties. Congress, do not strip the American people of their right to honest federal elections. Now, here's where the language in this article gets pretty harsh, and this is the part that probably makes me the most nervous about what is coming on Wednesday. The fraudulent election is an act of war against the people of the United States. Publius Holda says this was not just another election. This was a planned and coordinated attack on the people of the United States. If we don't defeat the fraud, the people of the United States will have been stripped of their sovereign power to choose their own representatives. This is an insurrection against the sovereign power of we the people. Traitors within our local, state, and federal governments have conspired with one another and apparently foreign agents to take our sovereign power away from us. And the cowards are going along with it. Now, the president has constitutional and statutory authority to carry out the duty imposed on him by Article 4, Section 4. If, when it meets on January 6th, Congress, too, shirks its constitutional duty to guarantee honest federal elections and refuses to disqualify Biden and Harris, then the president is the last hope, at least within the purview of the Constitution. Not only does Article 4, Section 4 impose this duty on the president, he's also bound by his oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States and to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. These three provisions impose on him the duty to act so as to preserve the federal constitutional republic created by our Constitution of 1787. And he has the constitutional and statutory authority to carry out his duty. Now from here, this is where it starts to, to get into some stuff that will probably make you uncomfortable. At least it made me uncomfortable. But, but I, I don't disagree with what, what is said here. That means the president has the power, should he choose to, call up the militia. I'll let you check it out for yourself. The article is linked in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. It uh, goes on to, to cite the, the requisite uh, sections of the Constitution, which talk about when and how the militia can be called forth to execute the laws of the Union, suppress insurrections, repel invasions, and so forth. It talks about a brief history of the militia. And by the way, it also makes a very clear distinction about how calling up the militia is not equivalent to imposing martial law. This is something that is not well understood, but, but if, you, if you want to, to be taken seriously, you better be precise in your use of terminology. Calling up the militia for the purposes described in Article 1, Section 8, Clause 15 is not imposing martial law. That's typically imposed during wartime when invading military forces disband civilian governments, including the courts, in the occupied country and then replace the civilian government with direct military control of the civilian populations. The article then goes on to talk about the rule of law, a term which politicians and attorneys general seem to have no idea what it means. They sling it around, but in his recent address to students at Hillsdale College, former Attorney General Barr said, the rule of law means treating everyone the same, but that's not even close. Law comes from a higher source than the civil authorities. The rule of law prevails when the civil authorities obey that higher law, be it God's law or our Constitution. The Bible shows that kings governed justly only when they governed in accordance with the law of God. In our country, the civil authorities govern justly only when they obey our Constitution. So the bottom line here, the the takeaway from this article, it isn't about Trump. 
Don't let the narrative try to sway you into believing this is only about Trump. It's about defending a constitutional republic from enemy attack. The author here says it doesn't matter what you or I think about President Trump. There's a lot to criticize about his policies. This fight is about whether our Republican form of government with verifiable and honest elections is to be restored or whether our right to choose our representatives is to be stripped from us forever. I know, the stakes are pretty high. The sense that we are standing at a historic crossroads uh, couldn't be stronger. So I guess it's up to us to really know what we stand for and make sure we've got our own hearts and minds in order. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I'm just going to offer a couple of real quick thoughts on uh, this coming Wednesday. To get a sense of the division that uh, that is taking place in this country, I just uh, I, I I'm trying to verify this. I've seen a couple of different tweets. I've seen nothing that disproves it. I haven't seen anything that I could say ah oh, this categorically proves it. But it sounds like the mayor of Washington D.C. has actually called on businesses. Actually, she has told businesses she will close them in order to prevent hundreds of thousands of Trump supporters from coming to town and protesting the certification of the electoral college vote on Wednesday of this week. Now, you know, there's there are plenty of, uh, of hotels in Maryland and Virginia that are, you know, accessible by rail, you know, that can get people into, you know, into the D.C. area. But that, no matter how you slice it, there is going to be, there's going to be a lot of people, for starters. There are going to be tons and tons of people on both sides showing up in Washington, D.C. two days from now. And uh, at least half of the people showing up (laughs) are not going to be happy at the end of the day. I'm not predicting anything horrible, but I will tell you that uh, I think the the margin of error here is about as razor thin as it could possibly be. And it ain't going to take much. If, if, If people start getting stupid, like angry stupid, as enemy driven people often do, it could unleash some things or send some things spiraling out of control that uh, that may really get out of control. And and I hope you understand. I'm not suggesting, therefore, we should probably all just sit on our hands and navel gaze and think about what could have been. I think that uh, we have a duty to stand up for our rights. I think we have a duty to stand up for properly limited government. But I do not believe that we are at the point where, yep, we better fire on Fort Sumter. And that's what I worry, is that uh, a Fort Sumter-like event is going to take place. We're not there yet, folks, but, uh, but we can see it coming. I'm still very much of the mind that uh, the, the, the solution that more people are, are not looking at is the option of peacefully walking away. In fact, I'll say it another way, seceding. Would you vote with your feet if you had the uh, opportunity? 
If you had the opportunity, if you knew that your state was was going hard one direction or the other, I don't care whether it's red or blue, those seem to be the only two distinctions were offered. But if if you knew that your state was really going to take a clamp down that that really limited your personal freedoms, I think you know gun ownership is one of the big lines in the sand. Would you vote with your feet and say I'm out of here? Because a lot of people are doing that right now. They're leaving California in droves. They're leaving other areas that are very anti-Second Amendment in droves. I know I would. And I wouldn't think twice. And people say, well, you should stick around and fix the problem. No. Why would I want to stick around and give legitimacy to to a state or to a system of governance that's doing its best to put me in a cage? that will milk me with impunity, try to take every dime it can from me for the sake of helping to build that cage. Nope. I'll deny them the resources. Let them find other sheep to shear. And if your protest is, well, what if they don't let you leave? Well, then we've got a problem, don't we? Now we're in a situation where, okay, force may be necessary, to defend one's life, liberty, and property, and, and especially, you know, one's liberty. All I'm suggesting is do not, don't be anxious to light that fuse. This is a time when we've got to be really thinking, and I think an appeal to God above is probably the, the second most overlooked set, you know, solution that, that we could be using. Too many people are just... Uh, uh, politically possessed. They, they can't see any value in looking at this from a, from a deeper perspective than, oh, my party win, good. My party lose, bad. Got to break out of that mindset. Freedom is, is not simply something that happens because of politics. If I could be so bold, freedom is a gift from our Creator possibly the greatest gift that he has given anybody. But you have to qualify for it. You have to be the kind of people that can be free. And that is not so easy, which is why when you look back at the history of mankind and you look at how often throughout the history of humankind people have enjoyed authentic freedom, they're very, very rare occasions. And even those who do manage to achieve a great degree of personal freedom they usually don't keep it for long. All that uh, freedom and all the prosperity that, that accompanies authentic freedom has a tendency to make them soft, make them comfortable, make them ripe for the picking when somebody comes along and says, hey, that's some nice freedom you got there. Be ashamed if anything happened to it and <laughs> tries to take it away from them. Which brings me to an article from Dan Sanchez Dan is a marvelous writer for the Foundation for Economic Education, and he does not disappoint. His latest article, Why Most Fell for the Lockdowns While Few, While a Few Stood for Liberty. This is one of the best ones I've seen. He says 2020 will be remembered for many things. COVID-19, nationwide riots, a divisive election. But the rise of pandemic lockdowns will go down as the most momentous. Never before have the day-to-day lives of so much of humanity been so radically upended. And outside of wartime, never before has there been such widespread and extreme rollback of human freedom. How did it all happen so fast? 
Why did America give in? Why did the people give in so quickly to such a sweeping assault on liberty, even in America, the land of the free? Well, he says, in a word, they let their guard down. They stopped being vigilant. And he follows up with a quote from Thomas Jefferson, the price of liberty is eternal vigilance. Now, he says, Jefferson never wrote those words exactly, but they are true nonetheless. Free people to stay free must forever be on their guard against would-be tyrants. But he says, tyrants long ago learned a method of making free people drop their guard, and that trick is to use an emergency as an excuse for power grabs, telling the people that the sacrifice of their liberty is necessary for their safety. Back in 1973, F.A. Hayek wrote, Emergencies have always been the pretext on which the safeguards of individual liberty have been eroded. And Hayek wasn't the first to notice this. William Pitt the Younger in 1783 said, Necessity is the plea for every infringement of human freedom. It is the argument of tyrants. It is the creed of slaves. And in Paradise Lost, written in 1667, John Milton wrote, And with necessity the tyrant's plea excused his devilish deeds. Now, Dan Sanchez notes, the greater the emergency, the more persuasive is this tyrant's plea. Thus, the COVID mega-emergency was especially an, an especially convincing excuse for suspending liberty, an exceptional situation that called for exceptional measures. For many, he says, it was self-evident that liberty simply wouldn't work in the midst of a pandemic. Compulsory social distancing would be necessary. Humans, after all, are social animals, as Aristotle said. Left to their own devices, they tend to get together. They congregate to collaborate and celebrate, to work and worship, to trade goods and exchange gifts, to share life and show love. But when every set of lungs is considered a clear and present danger, and every crowd a super-spreader event, it's easy for politicians to argue that freedom of assembly just won't fly. All comings and goings and gatherings must be tightly regulated. The government must decide whether it is safe to open shop, visit family, or even leave the house. The nature and scope of this emergency seemed to necessitate virtually unlimited governmental discretion to restrict physical freedom. It's a big imposition, but hey, it's a big emergency, and needs must, as they say. And so the people let down their guard and trusted their guardians. Now, they also were told to trust the science, and Sanchez says the uh, tyrant's plea for COVID lockdowns also seemed to be supported by the science, which lent it even more credibility. Scientists naturally fit the role of sage and savior in times of emergency. Science, after all, is derived from the Latin word for knowledge. And those who know are the heroes we need in an emergency, which is the rise or emergence of the unknown. Emergency, emergence. This, wrote Jordan Peterson, is the sudden manifestation from somewhere unknown of some previously unknown phenomenon. This is the reappearance of the eternal dragon from its eternal cavern, from its now disrupted slumber. Okay, got to put it on pause for here because we're coming up against the break, but we'll pick up with this article from Dan Sanchez, just the other side of our commercial messages. Our program is brought to you in part today by Alta Bank. That is my friend, John Staples, and I have contact information at the end of my show notes. You just click on it. It will take you directly to John. If you are within the sound of my voice within my home state of Utah, you really should contact John if you're looking for a home loan, looking for a refinance. Interest rates are still ridiculously low. And John is the guy who can help you. Show him some love. Tell him thanks for sponsoring this program. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. And just like that, we are back. I got to say, I feel like I'm... I feel like I'm dropping a lot of heavy stuff on you today. I know, it's the first show back into the new year and had a few days off and, well, maybe some time to think. And <laughs> this is some of the heavy stuff that's been percolating around in my mind. And and, uh, and so I apologize if, if, I'm, if I'm throwing you all the, the heavy topics uh, right up front. This is stuff that's really been weighing on my mind. And again, you can check out essays. Uh, the essays are linked in the show notes at thebrianheidshow.com. Right now, I'm sharing one from Dan Sanchez from the Foundation for Economic Education. Why most fell for the lockdowns while a few stood for liberty. And he talks about how a viral pandemic can be especially obscure and terrifying to people like us who are non-experts. The novel, new, emergent coronavirus is an invisible killer that works in mysterious ways. Only epidemiologists understand it, we reason. Thus, to survive the menace, we ignorant lay folks should defer to their expert knowledge and advice. And who are those top epidemiologists? Well, presumably the ones working in the highest levels of government, like Anthony Fauci, Neil Ferguson, the experts at the Centers for Disease Control and the World Health Organization. If these good doctors give humanity a diagnosis of too much liberty to get through COVID and a prescription of more lockdowns, who are we to question their expert opinion? And so the people let down their guard and trusted their sages. Now, there's also the knowledge problem. Not everybody, but some voices did object to the lockdowns, and a few spoke out against them from the get-go. In spite of the emergency and compelling authoritative pleas of necessity, they did not let their guard down against tyranny. They remained vigilant. Now, Dan Sanchez says one of these voices, I'm proud to say, was the organization he works for, the Foundation for Economic Education. Especially heroic has been the widely read articles on this subject by their prolific managing editor, John Miltimore. Why did we reject the lockdowns out of denial of the emergency, out of disrespect for the knowledge? No, quite the opposite. Socrates proclaimed, was proclaimed to be wise, not for the extent of his knowledge, but for knowing how little he knew in the grand scheme of things. Economics can impart similar wisdom. Hayek wrote, The curious task of economics is to demonstrate to men how little they really know about what they imagine they can design. Hayek explained the limits of human knowledge and the use of knowledge in society. This seminal scholarly article profoundly influenced many economists and even inspired Jimmy Wales to create Wikipedia. Leonard Reed, Fee's founder, popularized some of its ideas in his classic essay, I Pencil. Thus, Hayek's insights about knowledge are deeply embedded in Fee's DNA. Following up on the work of his mentor, Ludwig von Mises, Hayek set out to explain the fundamental law of socialism and central planning in general. Central planning, he argued, unavoidably fails the test of the knowledge problem. The knowledge relevant for planning an economy and society, Hayek explained, is dispersed among the individual minds of the people. The distributed knowledge is far too vast for any single planner or government to grasp. And this is no less true for planners who listen to the science, no matter how knowledgeable their scientific advisors are. For one, even the greatest scientific minds have extremely limited access to what economists call local knowledge. As Hayek explained, quote, Today it is almost heresy to suggest that scientific knowledge is not the sum of all knowledge. But a little reflection will show that there is beyond a question 
beyond question rather, a body of very important but unorganized knowledge which cannot possibly be called scientific in the sense of knowledge of general rules, the knowledge of the particular circumstances of time and place. And Hayek then continued, explaining how this knowledge can only be fully exploited by the individuals themselves. He said, it is with respect to this that practically every individual has some advantage over all others because he possesses unique information of which beneficial use might be made, but of which use can be made only if the decisions depending on it are left to him or are made with his active cooperation. Anybody who's ever had a job can relate to the concept of local knowledge. As again, Hayek points out, we need to remember only how much we have to learn in any occupation after we have completed our theoretical training, how big a part of our working life we spend learning particular jobs, and how valuable an asset in all walks of life is knowledge of people, of local conditions, and of special circumstances. End quote. Dan Sanchez says, and even more fundamentally, scientists have even less access to the goals and preferences of the individuals. Or as Hayek put it, ends whose relative importance only these individuals know. So how does this relate to pandemics and lockdowns? Well, short of full socialism, lockdowns are the epitome of central planning. And like all central plans, they run afoul of the knowledge problem, even when they are co-designed by scientists. Now, he says it should be noted that despite insistence in the media of a scientific consensus, dissenting epidemiologists and other experts have argued against the court scientists in government and opposed the lockdowns on public health grounds. Moreover, reputable research has indicated that lockdowns have failed at limiting the spread of COVID-19. But even leaving that question aside, he says it should be blindingly obvious that the spread of the disease is not the only relevant consideration for any given public policy, especially for such a widely and deeply impactful one as lockdowns. There are innumerable relevant considerations that even the most encyclopedic mind couldn't begin to know. There are local knowledge considerations, like how much a local economy might be devastated by closing all restaurants, and how many depressed people in a community might be pushed over the edge to suicide by unemployment and isolation. And there are individual preference considerations, like whether an elderly person in a nursing home would prefer the risk of contracting COVID-19 over the risk of dying alone in anguish forcibly isolated from his family. Even the most knowledgeable and best-intentioned lockdowner cannot begin to know or weigh these myriad co considerations. So as a result, the lockdowns have unleashed an epidemic of unintended consequences that have ruined countless lives. And the incoming Biden-Harris administration boasts that it will listen to the science and dial up and down the lockdowns according to local circumstances. But that's nothing more than delusions of ep epistemic grandeur. No government can know enough to fine-tune physical proximity in society. The more it tries, the more lives it will trample in its blind blundering. So to reject the lockdowns is not to reject science. It's to recognize that science is not omniscience. And that central planning amounts to arrogant pretense to godlike knowledge. Boom! He could drop the mic and walk away, but Dan Sanchez continues. So what then is the alternative? Should we just give up and let the virus have its way with us? He says such a response betrays a common false assumption that government is humanity's only source of agency and the only form of planning is central planning. As von Mises clarified, the alternative is not plan or no plan. The question is, who's planning? Should each member of society plan for himself or should the paternal government alone plan for all?
The issue is not automatism versus conscious action. It is the spontaneous action of each individual versus the exclusive action of the government. It is freedom versus government omnipotence. But another common objection says, well, won't everybody's individual plans be uncoordinated and chaotic? Doesn't a big challenge like COVID-19 require us all pulling together? Dan Sanchez says this falls prey to another common false assumption that government is humanity's only source of coordination. In reality, humanity engages in mass cooperation to solve incredibly complex problems every single day. This is a phenomenon known as spontaneous order. As Leonard Reed explained in iPencil, even something so seemingly simple as a pencil is the end result or the end product of a massive operation involving millions of producers. From the lumberjack who chopped down a tree for the pencil's wood, to the factory worker who ran the machine that shaped the axle for the truck that delivered that axe to the hardware store that the lumberjack bought it from. This mass cooperation is mostly spontaneous. Most of these producers are complete strangers to each other. They don't work for the same company. They live in different countries. There is no world pencil czar orchestrating at all. Most don't even know their work is contributing to pencil production. And yet, thanks to being connected to each other through the market, through the market economy, rather, they have all cooperated smoothly toward the production of a single pencil. Not only that, but in doing so, they've passed the test of Hayek's knowledge problem. The complete process of producing a pencil is so complex that it requires a vast amount of distributed knowledge, including local knowledge. Where in this forest can we find the best rubber trees for making erasers? And individual preferences. What is the more urgent use of this lumber right now? Pencils or toilet paper? Yet they pull it off because each participant specializes in their own manageable morsel of local knowledge and has chief responsibility for satisfying their own preferences. Dan Sanchez reminds us the price of liberty is eternal vigilance, and vigilance against tyranny requires a faith in free people informed by economic understanding. You'll have to read the rest of his article. It's posted at the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. If you read nothing else this week, I think this is one that you will find absolutely worth your time. Again, it's why most fell for the lockdowns while a few stood for liberty. From Dan Sanchez from the Foundation for Economic Education. This is The Brian Hyde Show.